We live in a time right now where if you want to draw a crowd, all you have to do is draw a line. You pick a side. You belittle the other person. If someone's not like you, you criticize them, especially this year of 2020. It's not that racism has gotten worse. It's just that now the cameras are on more of the time. This is a problem that's been going on for a while, and you've heard me do a podcast and a video on this. But today, guys, I want to shift gears. You hear me talk a lot about branding, and this is one of the most important brands that you'll ever learn and probably that I'll have on my content show, and that is the brand of love and forgiveness, specifically how it has to do with racial injustice. Now, you might be thinking, Adam, what does this have to do with branding? It has everything to do with branding. It has everything to do with politics. It's not about the donkey or the elephant. It's about the lamb. It's about staying in the middle and not picking sides because when you stay in the middle, guess what? You have love for both. It's not easy because you're going to be torn from wanting to love on both sides, from getting criticized and ridiculed from both sides at the same time. But guess what? That is where the radical gap lies. And guys, I am just, I really want to bring this message to you. And what I'm about to share uh, is not my words, but I am a member of Northway Christian Community Church. And we had some phenomenal guest speakers that I had the privilege of not only hearing, but meeting and speaking with afterward. And their story is just so incredibly phenomenal, not only for your career advancement, but more so for humanity. And that is really where it all stems from, because at the end of the day, we, we all need to be better people. We need to be good humans. And this is not a lecture, but this is really an inspiring story. And it's going to be a little long. I'm going to tell you that up front. But I promise you, I promise you, what you are about to hear will inspire you and probably bring you to tears. It is a multi-generational story of forgiveness, of love, with slavery, with Jesus, and with just changing your life. And the authors of the uh, that spoke were speakers and writers of this book, The Dream King. The two gentlemen that are going to speak that you're going to hear from are uh, Mr. Will Ford and Mr. Matt Lockett. And their story is just so absolutely incredible. I, I can't say enough, and I'm going to put a sock in it and allow them to do the talking. Uh, so what you're about to see was a sermon, what you're about to hear, uh, was a sermon delivered on November 15th at my church, Northway Christian Community, and uh, I have the blessed permission of the lead pastor there to share this. I highly recommend that if you enjoyed this content, if your heart is pulling on learning more about Jesus Christ, to really dive into that community. They have exceptional resources, and they're not they don't have an agenda. They're just there to support, give resources, and it's just a tremendous community that I'm involved in. So without further ado, I highly, highly recommend that you listen all the way through to this because I promise your mind will be blown over and over and over again. And it's just an incredible story of love and forgiveness, and that is a brand worth sharing. Enjoy, guys. I see my victory so clear.
Well, hello, Northway. My name is Will Ford, and we're here with my good friend, Matt Lockett, and it is an honor to be with y'all today, to share with you today, talking about the radical gap. But beyond that, too, we're talking about our story, that a story only God can write, but I believe it's definitely connected to the radical gap. I love the title that Pastor uh, David has for this, for this series, The Radical Gap, because that's the place where most people don't want to land right now. It seems that we're in this time where if you want to draw a crowd, all you have to do is draw a line. Everything, everything is so polarizing today, isn't it? You want to draw a crowd, you draw a line, and there are people on the, either side of those extremes think they're the radical ones. The ones who are on the radical right think they're extreme. The ones who are on the radical left think they're extreme. They may take shots every now and then from, one of the, from the other side, uh, but for the most part, those, both sides are insulated, right? You notice that on your Facebook posts and all the things you like. It's all the people who like what you like and think the way you think and repost what you post on either side. But the interesting thing is this. I believe that the real radical place is not necessarily the radical left or the radical right. I believe the radical place is the radical gap. We're going to talk about that today and why that's important. God is actually looking for people to stand in that place. Ezekiel 22:30 says, he sought for a man to stand not on the right, not on the left, but in the gap. And I believe, what the, the, I believe the reason why he looks for somebody to stand in the gap is because the people in the radical gap, they actually take shots from both sides. But if you're willing to do that, listen, God could use you to heal your family, to heal your nation, and not only that, you don't stand alone because God is the one who stands in that place. You know, I love... Uh, talking about history and actually this kettle pot uh, is part of the history and part of our story and it's connected to somebody who I believe stood in the radical gap, took shots from both sides as an intercessor for this nation and as a voice for the voiceless. It's Dr. Martin Luther King. If you guys don't mind, please let's, let's look at this one little clip from the I Have a Dream speech. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream. It's a powerful, powerful speech, right? I love that speech because I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And this kettle pot that you see on stage right here with us, this comes from the slaves of my family. It's been passed down for about eight generations. It was used by the slaves of my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for prayer. The way I like to say it is they were actually standing in the radical gap in their time period, interceding and praying for the next generation. See, those people who stand in the radical gap, they get to heal the past and shape the future. And that's what you're going to hear in this amazing story. Now, honestly, uh, I hadn't thought much about this kettle pot and how it was used to. I heard somebody talk about a concept of prayer where they were talking about how when we agree in prayer with all the things that God has started before us, 
and all the other spiritual promises that he made to the previous generation. And he helped me understand Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39 and 40 in a whole new way, which says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were approved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they wouldn't be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And when I thought about that, I remember this kettle pot and how it was used. Like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking, but they secretly used it for prayer because they were owned by a slave master who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. Back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew the Christian slaves made better workers, but they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. But it was easy to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. And the irony is that while they wanted them to be Christians, they didn't want them to pray because they felt like if they prayed, it would foster hope. If they got hopeful, they felt like they would try to run away. And they would literally be beaten if they were caught praying. Give an example how cruel slavery was on this plantation. We had the story passed down in our family about a great uncle who was literally beat to death just for going fishing without asking. So that's how cruel slavery was in that plantation. If they were caught praying, they would be beaten as well. But listen, the folks who passed down this kettle pot in my family, they were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they would go into a barn late at night, to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure it wasn't heard, they used this cast iron kettle pot. They would sneak into the barn late at night and take this pot and turn it upside down on the cabin floor. They would then prop it up with rocks so it'd be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves in the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle pot so that the pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story they passed down with this pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. One day freedom comes, there's this young teenage girl who decides to keep this pot, that story, in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I'm thinking about that amazing scripture of Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. Talking about those great heroes of faith and realize I had some great heroes of faith in my family who risked their lives to pray. And I needed to take up their unfinished business. And I thought, oh my God, to whom much is given, much is required. But then I thought about the privilege of that as well. I thought, oh my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I realized, listen... They use this pot to muffle their voice on earth as an acoustic means, but literally, Revelation 5 and 8 said there's a bowl in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every time we pray, it's collected, not in a wooden bowl or a golden bowl, but not in a wooden bowl, but a golden bowl. Listen, because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over Pittsburgh. There's a prayer bowl over Pennsylvania. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation, Northway, to resource the prayer bowls once again. And so it was the prayers of a godly runner of the people back then who prayed into being the first and the second great awakenings. 
Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended. And there were white Christian abolitionists back then who knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. They laid their lives down for each other. Many of them them were shot and killed and even lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And it was the prayers of that godly remnant of black Christian slaves, white abolitionists and white revivalists, they birthed the first and the second great awakening. So listen, I'm daring to believe the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott in that time period, he could use some people in the radical gap right now to pray in a revival that can break the power of Roe v. Wade, to put an end to systemic poverty, to stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison, shut down mass incarceration, or shut down the opiate crisis that's happening in the suburbs, or shut down the crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for some new people to stand in the radical gap in this hour for such a time as this. Well, it was about that time I had a dream about Dr. King that totally transformed my life. And it really, I think, is connected to the story in such a profound way. I had a dream about the dream of Dr. King. In the dream, I'm on my way to Dr. King's old church, but I couldn't get there without first picking up Dr. King. So I come out of this vehicle that I'm in, and I go to this, uh, <clears throat> I see where Dr. King has come out of this house, but he has this humongous white duffel bag with him with black candles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that, that bag will make a nice souvenir. <laughs> so in the dream, I go to try to pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. He starts telling me what I need to do to heal the racial divide in our nation and basically be one of those who stand in the radical gap and contend for, for healing in our nation. I woke up from the dream in tears. I've been weeping the whole night. I prayed and asked God for the interpretation. Listen, the Lord spoke to me, said, William, the white bag represented your white baggage. The black handles represented how you as a black man have been handling that white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I know what God's talking about because I know what it's like. 13 years old, me and a few friends were coming out of a convenience store and a carload full of white guys chased us and uh, called us the N-word, said they were going to do ugly things to us. They probably just joyriding, but listen, they chased us for almost two hours. We were terrified. I know what it's like later on in my 30s to get my first nice house in the suburbs and have the, first, have the same police officer for the first three months pull me over for just driving while black every week. I know what that feels like. But you know what I've done? For every white person and every police officer in that region, I put that story, those three stories, those two stories on everybody. It's what we do um, right now. We prejudge each other by putting other stereotypes on each other. It's the devil's diabolical plot. It's Revelation 12 where it says the devil is the accuser of the, re- of the brethren. The word accuser is a powerful Greek word. It comes from the word kategoros. It's where we get the word category. So the diabolical plot of the enemy is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other so that before we can have one good conversation with each other, we put some bad narrative, some bad storyline on each other. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your white baggage so you can get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. And I think the question God has for all of us is this. What color is your baggage? Listen, whatever it is, get rid of it, church, because we need each other. Because only a united church is going to heal a divided nation. Well, it was around that time that... I decided to go with my friend Lou Engle and go to this uh, 
prayer gathering in Washington, D.C., and there was a prayer meeting there, January 17, 2005, and that's where I met somebody else who was coming to stand in the gap for the nation. I want to introduce to you my good friend, Matt Lockett. Matt, come share. Thank you, Will. What an honor it is to be with you all here. Welcome uh, to our story, Northway. We're, we're really excited to, to be able to share this story with you. Here's what you're going to see, and this is our hope and our prayer, is that you won't just hear an amazing story about us, but that you would see that God would reveal to you that God is more intricately involved with all of our lives and all of our stories than we realize. And what he's doing right now is he's lifting the curtain, I believe, revealing his handiwork. And what, what we're going to discover is that we're more connected than we thought, and we need need each other more than we realize. So what I'd like to do is just kind of start in with my part of the story, how God wove my life together with Wills. And I'm going to start right where he left off. It was Martin Luther King Day 2005, which was January 17th. But I'm actually going to back up a little bit. It was one year to the day prior to that, that something really tragic happened when my dad passed away unexpectedly. And so when that happens, your life gets kind of thrown for a tailspin. You know, you've, you've been receiving from mom and dad your whole life, and suddenly now they're gone, and the, the steward of the storyline of your life now passes to you, where you've always heard the stories. Now you have to make some hard decisions going forward because you are now the teller of the story. And so during that time, one of the things that became very important to me was to discover where the Lockett family came from. See, in my dad's family, they couldn't get past their grandfather. There had been a loss of the records, but most importantly, there had just been a loss of the story. Somebody just stopped telling the story. And so my dad was one of 16 siblings. Listen, I've got a massive family that has looked into these matters and no one had ever been able to discover anything about our story. So I was a little presumptuous at that time. I decided I'm going to get the breakthrough on this. So I started researching and I hit all the same roadblocks that everyone else had ever hit. And so I was finishing that year more frustrated than I had started it. And so it was during that time that I had a dream. Now, let me just hit a timeout for a second. Will talked about dreams. I'm going to talk about dreams. We're talking about not the kind of dreams where you have a vision for the future, maybe sort of like a daydream about a better world. I'm talking about where you go to sleep at night and you have a dream while you're asleep and you feel like the God of the universe is kind of speaking your language and uh, pizza doesn't get all the credit. That's the kind of dream I'm talking about. So had a dream. I'm not going to go into that dream right now. We don't have time. But in this dream, God began to speak to me about how he was going to shift the culture of the nation, how he was going to end injustice and how he was going to do it through day and night prayer. Now, this was an interesting dream for me because number one, didn't know anything about prayer. I've been a Christian most of my life, but just to be honest, you know, you find out if somebody asks you to lead a prayer meeting, you find out in about five minutes, you don't really know enough about prayer. So saw some interesting things about prayer in the dream. Number two, I didn't really have a pursuit in my life to end injustice. And maybe you can relate to that, that, you know, you've heard about it. You would love to be a part of it, but it's really just not your thing. And you're content to let other people worry about this stuff. That was me. Number three, there was a man in my dream named Lou Ingalls, the same man that Will mentioned just a moment ago. What's interesting is I didn't know Lou Ingalls, but I met him first in my dream. And so this dream set me on a pursuit where uh, I found out there was a real guy named Lou Ingalls. He was really doing this thing with prayer in America. And so I decided to reach out to him. I actually got on the phone with somebody who worked with him and I said, hey, 
I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he was like, really? What was your dream? He took me seriously, which I wasn't expecting. So I told him my dream. And he said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what God is sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. and we're going to pray on these matters. The very thing that I had dreamt about. And so, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued now at this point. I know this dream's got a hold of me. God had a hold of me through this dream. And so he said this to me on the phone call. He said, you know, we're going to do a prayer meeting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day in January. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. And man, guys, this was just weird for me. Like, you know, God, you really want me to take time off work and go across the country to go to a prayer meeting in the middle of winter. But God had a hold of me. So I went. So actually, I have a photo I want to show you of that prayer meeting. I love showing this uh, picture. If you could go ahead and put that up. That's the prayer meeting I'm describing here. So that's the Lincoln Memorial you see in the background. So not a huge gathering, but there was a few hundred people there. You might recognize Lou Engel if you know who that is on the right third of the screen. But if you look on the left third, you see that blue sleeve extending out. If you could follow it all the way out to those fingertips, that's Will Ford right there. The first place that Will Ford and I ever came together was right there on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. That's right where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech that you saw earlier. Now, isn't that interesting that Will was there because of a dream? And I was there because of a dream. And we meet on the spot where Dr. King said, I have a dream. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But I uh, was there and then uh, we prayed all day. And then that evening, there was a guest speaker at a nearby church and it was Will Ford. And he brought out this kettle and he told the history of his family and slavery and how they prayed. And I was so provoked by this because I've been looking and researching in my family history and I could find nothing. And I'm listening to this man talk about this rich spiritual heritage of his family. And so I was really grieved over that, but also because it was one year to the day since my dad had passed away. And so that's when Will shared this part of the story where he said that this locket was handed down or this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett, who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., to Wilford Jr., to Wilford III, the man on the stage. And so I'm in sort of like a Moses moment at the burning bush where I'm hearing my name called and really provoked by that. So I went up and began to compare notes with Will after the service. And he asked how we spelled our name, with, which was with two T's. His lockets had spelled it with one. My lockets, as best we knew, were in Kentucky, where my dad was from, but his lockets were down in Louisiana. So we just thought it was this amazing coincidence but it was enough that it connected us in a friendship that has now endured for over 16 years. We've just been running and doing life together and praying for revival in America and contending against injustice. And so uh, that friendship has developed. It's been very rich and it's developed over the years. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. A few years later, uh, I, be, I was in a, a, you know, a relationship with Lou Engel and, and uh, he was going to do a prayer gathering in the state of Virginia. And he said, you know, if we're, if we're going to pray in Virginia, we first have to go pray at this historic site called Appomattox Courthouse. That's actually the place where the American Civil War ended. So a very pivotal, significant moment in our nation's history, uh, sort of the culmination and the end of more bloodshed than we've ever experienced. And we went to pray there. And uh, as we were leaving, we went into a little visitor center and... Uh, Lou and I stepped up to the bookcase standing side by side and he grabbed the first book off the shelf that caught his eye. It was this book right here. And he opened it to a random page. And I want to show you the page he turned to. If you could put up that next image. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. Now, would you agree that that 
seems a little significant that after years of praying that I would be in another Moses burning bush moment seeing my name called. It was the Battle of Lockett's Farm. What I found out is that was the last battle of the American Civil War. Lee fought the last battle in the front yard of a family named Lockett. Well, it was right about that time that my brother actually got breakthrough in our family genealogy and he called and said, I got us all the way back to the year 1645. We came in through the state of Virginia. And I said, man, Virginia, have I got a Virginia story for you? And I started to tell him about the end of the Civil War. And he said, wait a minute, that's not that place. And he began to describe its location. And it was precisely where we had, we, where we had learned about it. And I said, that's exactly where it is. He goes, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So think about this. Here's Will, who has this artifact from the past, this kettle that represents slaves who prayed in secret for the ending of slavery. And then I found out that the last battle of the American Civil War that ended slavery happened in my family's front yard. I actually went to that location. If you could put up the next image, I want you to see it. That's the Lockett Farmhouse from the day of battle. And there's the memorial stone in the front yard that says, here Lee fought his last battle. This book describes the scene of that battle. And it says this, that Lee got to the front of that yard and he, his wagon train got stuck there. And he turned his cannons around in the front yard as the Union army that was pursuing him emerged from the tree line in the backyard. And the book says this, that as you can see, all that stood between the two armies was the Lockett House. Listen, that description is a picture of the radical gap. That is a picture of intercession. I believe that that picture of that house standing between the two armies, standing between the brothers trying to rip each other to shreds is what God is calling the church to right now. We need to be that house willing to stand between the two uniforms, so to speak, the brothers that are fighting, willing to take shots from both sides. I love this description because it says at the end of the day, when the battle was over, that that house became a hospital for both sides. It says the, the floorboards of the house were stained with the blood of both North and South. Former slaves and white nurses tended to the wounded of both sides at the end of that day. That is a picture of the radical gap. And so what an amazing thing. I went to that house and I met the man who lives there and he began to tell me a little bit about the history that he knew of our family. And he said this, he said, you know, some of the lockets left here and went to Louisiana. And some of them, in some cases, those handwritten ledgers had a misspelling where they accidentally dropped one of the T's and changed the spelling of the name Lockett. Now, I was stunned when I heard that. Will, would you come up and join me, please? And let's share what we discovered after that. So Matt flies from D.C. to Dallas, and we just honestly just kind of talked and prayed and cried for a while and just compared notes from history. So he shared with me about the, this house there in Virginia where his family, the Lockets, were, well, in my Genealogical research that I had from 2002, we found a man named Isaac Lockett who was believed to be my oldest known uh, relative on my father's side of the family where this kettle comes from. He's there in Lake Providence, Louisiana in 1870. He's 90 years old. And in that census, he said he was originally from Virginia. So you know our slaves were usually uh, sold off to family members or whatever or aired off to other family members or whatever. And slaves also always, black people always took on the last name of the people who owned them. So my grandfather was actually born Lawrence Lockett, but his grandparents who raised him didn't want him to have a slave last name. So he changed his last name to Ford and gave him the first name of another friend, family friend. 
So that's how he became William Lawrence Ford. This led to another year and a half of research, and here's what we learned from, from the empirical evidence that we had. It was Matt's family who owned my family where this kettle pot comes from. So think about it. Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. Then all the, all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then, because he's the God of the past and the future, he weaves two other people into that same storyline, Matt Lockett and I, so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening in our time because he's the God who loves to heal history. Isn't that amazing? Because some people sought to stand in the radical gap. Yeah. And so I want you to really fully understand what we're talking about right here. It wasn't this story that connected Will and I. If we, I believe if we had found this out the first night that we met, you know what would have happened? We would have probably smiled and shaken hands and we would have, we'd have thought that's interesting. And then we would have socially distanced. Had a nice little socially distanced relationship. Probably for the rest of our lives. I would have quarantined myself away from you. Exactly. Yes. But God did this amazing thing where we didn't find any of this out until we had been praying together for almost a decade. We'd just been doing life together, learning how to love each other well. I kind of think that's how this is supposed to work, folks. Yep. And, uh, you know, after 10 years, it's like he, he says, okay, I think I can trust you guys with this now. And he lifts the curtain. He says, let me show you what I've been working on for a while. And he takes us all the way back and reveals this amazing history. But then he leaves us there, didn't he? He left us there for about a year and a half. Yeah. And that's all we knew is uh, his family owned our family. At first, we're prayer folks like y'all are. And we love uh, when God just reveals himself in such a way. So we were blown away. 300 million people, you know, here in America. And how is it that God would bring us to that spot to meet on that day, the first time we meet? Oh, this is amazing. But then I thought, hold up. Your people used to own my people. You know, when all the sizzle wore off and the honeymoon was kind of over. It got real hard. It got, yeah, as a folk, the young folks say, it got real. It got real. And so, honestly, I had some anger that came to the surface. And I realized why I had that white bag, black handles dream. I had to go to a deeper level of forgiveness. And it wasn't hard to do because I had 10 years of friendship with Matt at this time. He's one of my best friends and uh, somebody that I love, but for the first time I had a face connected to the painful stories of my family. But you know what? I forgave. I went to a deeper level of forgiveness and I'm so thankful for it. Yeah, and for me, uh, what God was doing in me at that time is here I am a Christian, been a Christian most of my life, thinking that I was at a good place with, with some of these things, you know, and, and, and I think that many of us can probably relate to that. It's like, you know, you know, you see, you see claims of racism, maybe you see something in the news, and you're like, man, I'm not like that. You know, I, you know, we can probably all relate to that, but God was confronting me in the apathy of my own heart. And he was taking me to a deeper level of identification and empathy of something that I didn't think I had anything to do with. And then suddenly I realized, no, I'm directly connected to the story of this kettle. And I'm directly connected to the story of all these painful stories that I've been listening to Will talk about all these years. So, I mean, think about it for a second. If this story has good guys and bad guys, I'm connected to the bad guy. You know, so God was dealing with me. He was confronting the apathy in my own heart. And I had to go to a whole new level in that way. So powerful thing. So, but the beautiful thing is this, God didn't leave us there. But let me hit one thing very quick. There are two people, two sides right now on the radical left and the quote unquote radical right or whatever. One side wants to withhold forgiveness. And there's another side that wants to withhold repentance. And they're thinking, you know, if we keep holding on and holding off, we're going to win. And what Matt and I are saying is this. First one to love wins. First one to forgive wins. 
First one to repent wins. That's what happens when you stand in the radical gap. You get to uh, be that one that releases the kingdom of God into, into the midst of the place that needs healing right now in our nation, especially with this issue. But the beautiful thing is God didn't leave it there. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful point that you're adding there because it's it's like maybe you don't think that you're the problem, but I, I love how you just said that, that the first one to love wins. Well, I got it from you. Wins. <laughs> But you know what I mean? The the, the point is this, is that that we got to get out of this turf war mindset in America where we just keep defending our position. I believe that the power and the potential of the church right now is to reintroduce everyone to the power of repentance and forgiveness. We have no idea what that could release in terms of forget, you know, in terms of just a, a revival, really what we're talking about is revival in the nation. You know, God took uh, us back out of that uh, place, you know, where we're dealing with the difficulties of that revelation. But you know what? He took us back a little bit further. I found out something amazing about my family. Once the lid came off the family tree, he led me to read this book about how revival had come to Virginia during the Revolutionary War and specifically with the Methodists, the Methodist circuit riders at that time, uh, I found a list that, uh, and discovered that Daniel Lockett, one of my ancestors, had become a Methodist circuit rider. And that's very significant because at that time in history, the circuit riders, they were, as they carried the gospel to the frontier on horseback, they took Bibles, they took hymnals in their saddlebags, but they also carried a legal document that was called a manumission form. What's that? That was actually a document that allowed you to set your slaves free. So how would you like to be in that altar call where you respond to receive Christ and you are told, well, by the way, it is for freedom that Christ sets you free and you're given the opportunity to set your slaves free at the same time. Listen, we know that's exactly what happened because when you study it, everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves exploded. And you know what that tells me? That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ on display, not just to impact the human heart, but to actually reshape the world around us as we express it in action. Exactly. That's so powerful. Think about it. We have all these things. Two things, generational curses, generational blessings that represent these dominating things or storylines in all of our families. Man had, of course, slave owners, but also had people who fought for the ending of slavery in the same family. So the beautiful thing is this. God is saying through all this, through these amazing storylines and narratives that in all of our families of healing and hurt, God is saying, what storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing of the hurt, the blessing of the curse, what storyline do we want to be a part of? Show this last one real quick. I'll give you a beautiful example of what Will's describing here. He mentioned earlier that it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. It was actually illegal for anyone to teach them how to read and write. But even after slavery ended, guess what? It wasn't very popular still. And so 1867, two years after the war, there's a mother former slave trying to teach her young son how to read and write right there in that Lockett Homestead area. And they're doing it in secret because they feared consequences. But in one night walks Lucy Lockett, one of my ancestors, and she catches him red handed. And in that moment, I have to look at it this way. Lucy chose a different storyline. Instead of repeating the the mistakes of the past, she looks at the mother and says, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. Now, we know that story in that level of detail because that young boy recorded it in his autobiography. See, Lucy took him up tutoring him in how to read and write. That little boy was Robert Russell He went on to become president of Tuskegee Institute. He replaced Booker T. Washington. He was an educational advisor to legislators and presidents. And if you could put up the last image, please. In 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial. 
where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that very spot and declare, I have a dream. And 41 years after the speech, Will and I would meet on that exact same spot. So isn't that fascinating? So think about it. This happened to two men who were led by dreams to the very place where Dr. King said in his I have a dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So think about it, God. Maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's this dream king called the King of Kings, and his father's going to answer his prayer when he says, Father, I pray that they will be one so that your glory could come so that the world would believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of the people in the radical gap from years ago. You know, I told you about how in my family I had a a great, 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 great uncle who was beat to death simply for going fishing without asking, strapped to a tree and beaten. Matt told you a story about the house that was there and took shots from both sides, but later became healing, a place of healing for both sides. Listen, that happened unwillingly for both of our families, but willingly, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all and taking shots from every side. But listen, by his stripes, he's healing history. And by his blood, he is uniting us. And he still lives to stand in the radical gap to ever live to make intercession for us. And we get to partner with him in that place of prayer, in that place of action. So that's what this series is all about. You taking your place in the radical gap. And if you stay there, yeah, you may take shots, but you don't stand alone. And you get to shape history through your prayer life and through walking with God. Father, I just pray right now for everyone here at Northway, Lord, anyone else who might be watching this web stream, Lord, we pray right now that you would connect us with your unfinished business from the past. Lord, you will start something in one generation, fully intending to fulfill it later in a later generation. So God, I pray right now, Lord, those that have gone before us, those that have stood in the radical gap in the past, but didn't see their answers to prayer. God, we know that their prayers are still alive before your throne in a prayer bowl in heaven, just waiting to be answered. So God, I'm asking, connect us to the unfinished business. And God, we ask, make us the answer to their prayers in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. I see my victory so clear. I see my victory so clear. It's a day we break through.